Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, September 3rd, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. The cover story this week, Project 515. With more than 18% of downtown office space vacant, experts talk predictions and solutions. Attracting companies and workers to downtown offices is a top priority, panelists said by Kathy A. Bolton. In fall 2019, downtown Des Moines was buzzing with activity. Many of the more than 80,000 downtown workers filled restaurants during weekday noon hours. Visitors strolled through the Papa John Sculpture Park. Hotels were filled with business travelers and convention goers. That buzz of activity went away with the arrival of COVID-19 in the spring of 2020. Eighteen months later, downtown's pre-pandemic level of activity has not yet returned, in part because 18.3% of the Central Business District's office space is vacant. And what is concerning to some is that the vacancy rates could climb even higher as companies move to allowing employees to work remotely either all or part of the time. We have a lot of owner-occupied buildings in Des Moines, said Bill Wright, Senior Vice President of CBRE Hubble. We're starting to see employers deciding, you know, we're probably going to be 50% or 70% of what we were. And we're starting to see some owners ask how much the space could be leased for. That's what gives me the greatest pause is that shadow space. I don't think we understand what that means to the market now, but it's certainly going to have an impact on our market," he said. Wright was among six panelists who participated in the Business Record's second Project 515, a series of virtual events designed to take a deep look into specific sectors of the real estate industry. The first discussion, held in June, focused on retail and the service industries. The second discussion, held in mid-August, focused on the office sector, particularly in the Central Business District. Other panelists included Brian Crow, Executive Vice President, Economic Development of the Greater Des Moines Partnership, Siri Fleeler, Registered Interior Designer, Shive Hattery, Adam Caduce, Senior Vice President, R&R Realty Group, Carrie Cruz, Economic Development Administrator, City of Des Moines, and Jonathan Ramsey, Associate Principal, BNIM. It's often said that downtowns are essential to healthy cities and suburbs. Without strong central business districts, other areas of a region often struggle to be healthy and vibrant. So it's concerning when a downtown starts to show signs of weakening, panelists said. As the pandemic has lingered, companies are reassessing plans of when to bring employees back to the office either on a full or part-time basis. Some are assessing whether they need as big an office footprint as they did pre-pandemic or whether they need a footprint at all. The result could be an increase in vacant office space, not only in the central business district but also the surrounding suburbs. The partnership along with the City of Des Moines, Polk County, Catch Des Moines, and other downtown-related groups, 
has hired a team of consultants to help shape a new vision and action plan for downtown as it emerges from the pandemic. The plan is expected to be completed by spring, by next spring. This is our chance right now to think about what's up next in the coming decade and to make sure that this is a great place to live, work, and experience, Crow said. Among the things the plan will likely take into account is the amount of vacant office space in the downtown area. In the fourth quarter of 2019, the Greater Des Moines area had an office vacancy rate of 12.4%, according to CBRE Hubble Realty's quarterly market report. The Central Business District's vacancy rate was 12.5%, and the Western Suburbs 11.3%. The vacancy rates have climbed during the ensuing months. In the 2021 second quarter, which ended June 30th, the area's overall office vacancy rate was 16.9%, up 4.5 percentage points from the end of 2019, according to Hubble's report. In the Central Business District, 1.16 million square feet or 18.3% of office space was vacant in the second quarter, according to the report. The downtown has over 6.3 million square feet of office space. In the western suburbs, which have more than 9.4 million square feet of office space, 14.9% or 1.4 million square feet was vacant, according to the report. We're at levels that we haven't seen here for several years, Wright said. The report also noted that sublease space accounts for 9.2% of all the available office space on the market. The amount is nearly 7 percentage points higher than the six-year average of 2.4%. Among the subleased space available is 22,000 square feet at 909 Locust Street, and 17,000 square feet at 601 Locust Street, both in downtown Des Moines, and 30,000 square feet at 1275 Northwest 128th Street in Clive. We're seeing more and more of that space come available, Wright said. Some companies have made that decision that they are either closing up the office or they are going to much more of a hybrid environment and they are putting that space on the market for sublease, he said. The vacancies are similar to what occurred during the Great Recession more than a decade ago, Caduce said. During the recession, we saw a freeze of the credit markets and we saw a lot of fire sales, he, saw, he said. A lot of buildings, and we even saw a few in Des Moines, got returned to lenders. We're not seeing that now. But the result is the same, higher vacancy rates, he said. One way of filling some of the vacant office space is by enticing companies from outside Iowa to relocate to the Des Moines area, members of the panel said. Crow said the partnership is fielding inquiries from companies located on the east and west coasts and in larger metropolitan areas. Those companies are finding it challenging to getting workers, particularly those with long commutes, back into the office, he said. 
They are feeling there's an opportunity to have some density and collaborative space with employees if they were located in smaller markets like ours, Crow said. Amenities like the sculpture and skate parks, Iowa Confluence water trails, Principal Park, and proposed soccer stadium are key to helping keep businesses in the Des Moines area and attracting new ones, the panelists said. A lot of times people will equate their access to unique retail opportunities, their access to unique event spaces, as quality of life, Crow said. So having access to unique experiences is absolutely critical. In July, EMC insurance companies announced plans to develop a pocket park on vacant ground at 701 Walnut Street in downtown. The company, which acquired the property in 2018, had planned to build an office tower on the site. However, EMC now has, quote, determined it has no near-term needs for additional office space, end quote, according to a news release. The site is where the Yonkers department store had been located. The vacant building was destroyed in a fire in March 2014. The park will include sports courts, seating, raised flower beds, and public art. It's those types of placemaking where government and the private sector can partner to really make improvements to downtown and continue to work on its vitality, Cruz said. It's those types of things that make downtown the special place that it is and help attract workers back to offices. Participants were asked to predict what the future holds for the office sector. Here are their responses. Brian Crow, Executive Vice President, Economic Development, Greater Des Moines Partnership. I know right now that we have companies from all across the country who are recruiting our workforce to work remotely for their companies. I think there will be a continued battle for workforce attraction and making sure that we are just a destination where people want to be. That battle could help bring those companies here and help fill up that vacancy. We also have extremely strong entrepreneurial business starts happening right now. Hopefully there's opportunities for some of those companies to grow into some of the spaces. Siri Fleeler, Registered Interior Designer, Shive Hattery. I think we're going to see a lot of renovations happening instead of new office builds over the next five years. From a design perspective, I think it'll really be honing in on what are the employees needing when they come into the office. What's that right balance and support of different types of spaces? How does technology get integrated so that it is a blend of remote and in-person workers and it's a seamless workplace? Work Adam Caduce, Senior Vice President, R&R Realty Group. I think companies will move toward where the demand is. If it's for smaller spaces, for the time being, that's where the market will go. But you've got buildings right now in Des Moines that are owned by strong landlords and strong companies that have good balance sheets and are well capitalized. While we'll see vacancy rates go up, we won't see buildings get returned to lenders. 
I think they'll continue to maintain good properties, and as those large uses return to the market, they'll start to backfill that space. Kerry Cruz, Economic Development Administrator, City of Des Moines. We're going to see the downward pressure on lease rates and we'll see the increase in vacancies. Eventually, we're going to see that reflected in property tax assessments. There could be some short-term revenue challenges for local governments related to the shifts in commercial property assessments. But I think Des Moines is really well positioned for this to be a quick recovery. I think the revenue challenges to local governments will be short-term. Jonathan Ramsey, Associate Principal, BNIM. I think for a lot of companies, I can see them taking a strategy of just making smaller tweaks and working with what they have as being the preferred approach and not overcommit to any one strategy in the face of continued uncertainty. Ultimately, there will be a critical mass of clients who get to the point where these sorts of strategies, returned to work and the hybrid, may become very commonplace in terms of what people are trying to accomplish in their workplaces. And Bill Wright, Senior Vice President, CBRE Hubble. Vacancy rates are going to go up, no question about it. I think you'll have a period of time where there's going to be some concern. Des Moines has so many great things going for it. Quality of life, education, its people, its business climate. My prediction is, by the middle of this decade, we're going to have some major employers make a decision that Des Moines is their new home and they will backfill some of those spaces. Siri Fleeler, Registered Interior Designer with Shive Hattery, and Jonathan Ramsey, Associate Principal at BNIM, talked about how office space has been adapted to the post-COVID-19 environment. Ramsey. Companies are talking about investing in more robust audiovisual systems and technologies, such as camera tracking of speakers in conference rooms and better arrays of microphones. Those are the sorts of technologies that some organizations already have in place, but I think they've become more of interest to others in this new environment. Fleeler. I think if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, it's that we are really looking at employees as holistic individuals and really thinking more carefully about their wellness and well-being within the workplace. When we're talking about getting people back to the office, we need to ask, what is it that is going to drive them to be excited about coming into the office every day? What are not just the big moves in first impressions, but the little things every day that make their life easier and make it exciting to come into work. The next story, a whole new level of services for Central Iowa's homeless. Joppa expands resource center in Des Moines, engages leaders in village plan by Joe Gardiaz. Those who are homeless in Greater Des Moines can find a kind reception, a cold bottle of water, or a snack and a place to sit down while they recharge themselves and their cell phones at Joppa's new Homeless Resource Center on Des Moines' east side. By next spring, with assistance from city, county, business, and nonprofit leaders from across Greater Des Moines, 
JAPA founder Joe Stevens is hopeful his organization can finally realize a dream to establish a tiny home village in Des Moines as a firm stepping stone out of homelessness. Working with a steering committee led by retired Des Moines City Councilwoman Christine Hensley and Des Moines Mayor Frank County, JAPA is in the early stages of securing city approval for the use of two adjoining parcels of land in the Cheatham Park neighborhood of Des Moines for the initiative. The concept, which has been stalled for several years for lack of an acceptable site, is to develop a gated village of 50 transitional tiny homes, or cottage lofts, on that site as part of a model to help people transition to more permanent housing. The plan is part of a, quote, three-legged stool, end quote, approach to ending homelessness by first enabling more people to receive immediate shelter while receiving other support to get out of homelessness. Stevens researched tiny homes and found that several nonprofits around the country were finding success in creating small villages to shelter the homeless. By building shelters that are large enough for a person to sleep in a real bed and have a small amount of living space, the tiny homes provide a safe, secure, and warm sanctuary with a door that can be locked. The homes are integrated with programs and support to provide a path out of homelessness. We tried to find every tiny home village and study it, and I went and visited several of them and I've been back to a couple of them more than once, he said. We acquired all their best practices and governance and vi village operational manuals, he said. There have been more that he's heard of since his initial research. They're popping up all over the country, he said. In September, Strategic America Associates plan to hold a two-day build in the parking lot of their office to construct ready-to-assemble panels for an initial cottage that will be assembled to serve as a demonstration model. The Des Moines Planning and Zoning Commission recently approved a rezoning that Stevens describes as somewhere around step one of probably 20 or more toward gaining full approval for use of the two adjoining land parcels, one city-owned and the other developer-owned, that appear to be suited for the project. The nonprofit, which was started in 2008, now has a solid track record of success in assisting the homeless, Stevens said in a recent interview. We've gotten 470 people off the streets, and we're at an 86% retention rate, not lapsing back to homelessness. So we know how to help get people off the streets, he said. This village is going to take that to a whole new level because we can certainly help 50 people immediately. And there is the expectation that so many of those people will graduate each year, so that will open up more homes for someone else, he said. Joppa began after Stevens had an unexpected encounter with a homeless camp while he and his family were out walking, which inspired them to take action to help. What had emerged from the grassroots efforts of Stevens and his family, followed quickly by neighbors and friends and then the community at large, in gathering food, supplies, and emergency heating for people living in homeless camps, has grown by what may be considered biblical proportions in recent years.
The nonprofit recently moved its operations from a location near downtown to the city's east side in leased space at 2629 Euclid Avenue, directly south of the county's social services hub, Polk County River Place. The recently renovated space in the shopping center is designed to provide a welcoming stop for individuals facing homelessness as well as a larger base of operations for sending volunteers out with supplies and food to homeless camps around the metro. Joppa is also in the early stages of preparing the space next door to them, next door to them for a high-end thrift store that it plans to open in the future. Stevens' vision for creating a village of tiny homes to provide safe, temporary housing for people facing homelessness has its roots in a community-wide effort in 2009 led by the city of Des Moines to address homelessness. That was the birth of the Street Outreach Coalition, and we've met pretty much every month since then, he said. The city manager at the time, Rick Clark, asked me to come up with some solutions for, un for the unsheltered. When it came time for an organization to step up to lead the effort, none of the other organization's missions fit as well as JAPA's, so the nonprofit has been leading the charge since then. Trying to get this project done, we've gone through several hundred properties that have been considered, Stevens said. So we recognized last year that we really needed the city and the county to guide us as to which properties might be acceptable first before we spent the effort. And so we developed last year what we call the Joppa Village Coalition, he said. In addition to Mayor Frank County and former Councilwoman Christine Hensley, current City Council members Josh Mandelbaum and Linda Westergaard are members of the coalition, as are Polk County Supervisor Matt McCoy and Matt Anderson, Deputy City Manager. Among Joppa's project partners for Joppa Village are Polk County Housing Trust Fund, BSB Design, Snyder Engineering, Simonson Architecture, Edge Commercial LLC, and Habitat for Humanity. A number of other organizations, including the Department of Veterans Affairs, Primary Health Care, Inc., and others, will also be working with Joppa to provide referred services for clients once the village begins operations. Stevens' tenacity in continuing to move forward with the project despite significant hurdles and the strong group of volunteers that Joppa has attracted persuaded Hensley to co-chair the Leadership Coalition, she said. I really didn't have too much contact with Stevens until right before I left the council when he was involved with the Polk County Continuum of Care and some other things that were going on, Hensley said. I was so impressed with how much he had accomplished, his tenacity and what he was able to accomplish with such a strong core group of volunteers. I knew that he had had problems trying to find locations. And I thought that the idea of putting an advisory committee together would be extremely helpful to him so that it would have gone through a process and met criteria, she said. And we were very strategic in choosing the people that we asked to be on the advisory committee. The committee has been meeting monthly to coordinate communication efforts and to ensure that neighborhood groups understand the concept. 
Many times, more of it is just strictly about education and making sure that we answer questions, she said. The response that we're getting has been very positive. They've gone through planning and zoning, and they've had some neighborhood meetings. Hensley said she is, quote, cautiously optimistic, end quote, that the project will be moving forward. She said, as a result of what has happened in the past, they've taken and really critiqued that knowledge and made changes that are very positive at this point. One of the most significant changes was modification of the original design of the tiny houses that will be built for Joppa Village, which are now called loft cottages, so that each has its own bathroom and kitchenette with running water. The initial design had called for a cabin-like approach in which each resident would walk a few dozen feet to use a community restroom. That was one of the stumbling blocks that we ran into when presenting it to city officials and other people, Stevens said. So we redesigned them with plumbing, so now they have a full bathroom plus a little kitchenette. We did that proactively because we recognized that during a pandemic, people need to isolate themselves. And so now we call it a loft cottage. It's just got a lot of really cool features that make it very dignified, he said. The construction phase of the village project will provide many opportunities for organizations to get their teams involved as volunteers. For John Schwerz and his colleagues at Strategic America, it will allow them to fulfill a commitment they made about three years ago to Joppa that began with a fundraising effort for their annual United Way campaign. We wanted to get involved, and all the associates chipped in and the company did a match on it, said Schwerz, the agent, advertising agency's president and CEO. Then we kind of hit the pause button because Joppa didn't have a location for it, he said. In addition to building the panels that will then be transported and assembled on site, he said, quote, we'll also help, hopefully, to add some furnishings to it to add some personality. We're excited about it. It's one of those things we talked about and now we're ready to enter that next chapter. Because final authorization for the project hasn't been received from the city, Joppa can't accept donations yet that are designated specifically for the Joppa Village project. The nonprofit is currently working with a fundraising organization to develop a capital campaign. We're getting a lot of interest from the city and county and others, Stevens said. I would think this would appeal to anybody in the area who is a community leader. We'll be reaching out to not just our own donors, but to all the usual suspects in town that fund big projects like these, he said. More immediately, organizations can get involved by making general donations or providing sponsorship to Joppa by visiting its website or by meeting with Stevens to discuss other potential partnerships. According to the Institute for Community Alliances, about 650 people each day are homeless in Polk County. A survey conducted by Joppa earlier this year of its clients found that about one out of three people were first time homeless due to the economic effects of the pandemic. Nationally, about 30% of the homeless population are families with young children. About the village, 
The loft cottages will be located in a gated community that provides a safe place for people working their way out of homelessness. In this village, they can gain a source of income and overcome other housing barriers before moving into a permanent home. The village will provide immediate housing for 50 people currently living under bridges, in tents and vehicles, and on the streets. A resident manager will be on site 24 hours a day and residents will be required to follow a good conduct policy. Residents will also take part in care and upkeep of the village. In addition to basic needs, there will also be micro-business opportunities such as a community garden, a bee operation, and chickens. Joppa also plans additional permanent housing in tiny houses called cottage homes, which will be available as rental units nearby. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, September 3, 2021 on IRIS the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. From the Business Records on Leadership column, written by Susan DeBaca, President and Group Publisher of BPC, Juggling Leadership and Parenting in Today's Reality. Recently, I was on a Zoom business call with a woman whose three young kids and very vocal hound dog all made appearances. She was mortified by the interruptions and apologized profusely. I told her not to worry one bit. Not only have I enjoyed meeting people's kids and dogs on virtual calls during the pandemic, the blending of work and real life is simply our new reality. But that is easy for me to say since my stepkids are grown and gone. For parents trying to juggle it all, the struggle is real. Let's face it, every working parent has been put to the test since COVID-19 hit. Trying to lead teams or manage work while simultaneously handling childcare and schooling has become exponentially difficult as lines between home and the workplace have blurred. The interruptions are constant. A December 2020 survey by the Pew Research Center found that, quote, half of remote workers with children under 18 have found it challenging to get through the workday without interruption, as opposed to only 20% of workers without kids, end quote. Not only do those interruptions cause stress, they also interfere with leading effectively meeting performance goals, and even advancement opportunities. While we know the pandemic has disproportionately affected women in the workforce, challenges are reported by both mothers and fathers. And while virtual work has unique challenges, those who are not working remotely are also pulled in multiple directions. How are working parents adapting and coping with this new and continuing reality? With schools starting and the variants delaying or changing back-to-work scenarios, I turned to local leaders with kids and asked, what is one of the most important lessons you have learned as you have juggled your professional career and parenting kids through so much recent change and uncertainty? Sophia Ahmad, Senior Director of Development, Mercy One Des Moines Foundation, founder and principal of Mobile Music Lessons LLC said, The lesson I learned was to keep growing. 
I became a mom three days into the pandemic lockdown. As our world slowed down, I focused on small, frequent disciplines that reap long-term rewards while being deeply present with my family, coworkers, and clients. I started an MBA and expanded a side business while embracing the compelling work at Mercy One. Jenna Knox, External Relations Manager, Broadlawns Medical Center. The importance of clearing the slate. Over the last 18 months, my children have felt a great amount of uncertainty and change in their worlds. I have had to learn to be mindful about not adding my own pressures to quote, juggle it all, end quote, onto them as well. Jorge Jr. Ibarra, CEO and team leader, Ibarra Realty Group. Being an entrepreneurial family and having three kids under the age of five, the most important lesson has been that it's okay if things aren't perfect. We have to give ourselves, both parents and kids, flexibility with our routines and workload. As long as our family is healthy, physically and mentally, then everything else will get figured out. It all works itself out in the end. Joe Murphy, Executive Director of the Iowa Business Council said, to be intentional. I try to schedule every aspect of my day. This helps me stay aligned on the Iowa Business Council's strategic priorities, but it also helps me carve out deliberate time to spend with my family and friends. Being intentional about everything I do keeps me focused on the things that truly matter at work and at home. Lauren Patrick, Dentist at University Dental Group. Be flexible and communicate your needs. In a time when we don't know what's coming at us from one day to the next, be okay with both having a plan and knowing that plan could crumble at any moment. And to that point, vocalize to your support system how they can step in and help you. Aaron L. Todd, Chief Executive Officer, Iowa Primary Care Association. When life throws me a curveball, I pause and ask myself, how much does this really matter? We can spend so much time trying to control things, seek perfection, and ultimately allow minor obstacles to stop us from progress. Or we can pause, take a deep breath, and refocus on what truly matters. Here's some advice from leaders with kids on keeping your sanity while working and parenting. Refine your reactions. Leaders strive to provide appropriate and constructive feedback and monitor responses at work, but can also benefit from refining reactions at home. Don't laugh at your kids during a meltdown, advises Murphy, the father of three, including a set of twins. It makes it much, much worse. Set boundaries. Todd suggests that the concept of work-life balance is fooey, that it all comes down to setting boundaries and it is incumbent upon the leader to set them. It's essential to take the time and make the effort to authentically know for ourselves how to seek and find fulfillment at work and home, he says, stressing it's important to recognize that the journey is not static, but rather ebbs and flows over time 
and to accept that it is essential to practice self-care, particularly during times of rapid change. Make time to recharge and invest in yourself. During the pandemic, I fell in love with five-minute YouTube workouts, says Knox, who continues to do them. They are so short that there is no reason I couldn't fit at least one workout into my schedule, and they make me feel good about accomplishing something for myself that day. Get out. Take some time to be outside, alone, says Patrick. Connecting with nature always lowers my anxiety, even in the middle of a workday. Retain a sense of wonder. A best practice for parents is to retain a sense of wonder and curiosity, which inspires joy, empathy, and mutual respect, says Ahmad. I see that wonder in my son, and it inspires me to hold tight to it. Keep on keeping on. Working and parenting is not easy, especially when you have deadlines to meet and kids who need attention and support, says Abara. For those of us watching Disney movies a thousand times over, Hakuna Matata, just keep swimming. Next, a closer look. Meet a leader you should know. Brian Crow, Executive Vice President of Economic Development, Greater Des Moines Partnership. By Michael Crum. When Brian Crow began his new role as Executive Vice President of Economic Development with the Greater Des Moines Partnership in January, he brought with him the knowledge and experience that will help him move the region forward as it continues to set the bar and be a leader in growth and development nationally. His journey to Des Moines started after he graduated from college and joined the Peace Corps, where he lived in Transylvania and taught at a Romanian school and a Hungarian school. Later, after working for CareerBuilder.com in suburban Chicago, he moved to Iowa where he worked for the state of Iowa, which Crow credits with launching his career trajectory. He later worked for the Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance and the Iowa City Cedar Rapids Regional Economic Development Group before joining the partnership in January. Get to know Brian as he talks about the challenges the region is facing and how it can best play off its strengths as he takes over the reins of economic development for the Greater Des Moines Partnership. What are some of the specific challenges Des Moines and Central Iowa have moving forward? One of the things that has plagued Iowa forever has been labor availability. I think having available workforce in our urban areas is a challenge, but in our rural areas it's also a challenge. Having opportunities for people across the region to see themselves and to find opportunities that meet expectations across the region, to identify opportunities that we can go after that really fit a niche for everybody in our region, and continuing to attract people from all works of life from all corners and not just the country but across the globe to add diverse thoughts and opinions and to truly make us an international city. I think that will just perpetuate business and cultural understanding in the region. What strategies can be undertaken to help facilitate the change that is needed to solve the problem of workforce availability?
Some of them can be and are interwoven. Broadband and workforce, giving people an opportunity to live where they want. We've had conversations with companies whose employees commute an hour or an hour and a half to an existing location, and their commute time might be a lot less in a market like ours. They may live in a much more expensive market, and if they can cash out equity in their house, they can live a mortgage-free lifestyle here and have that cash to do with what they want. But they could bring their job here. It can be a very attractive proposition. I think that interconnectivity is really going to drive people's ability to be innovative at home. They won't have to go to commercial centers to start the next business or the next innovative idea. It doesn't have to be Boston or Silicon Valley. It can be in a rural part of Iowa. That's another great reason that we should be investing in infrastructure. Do you think companies will decrease their physical footprint as a result of what's happened over the past year with the pandemic and the lessons learned through remote working? I think employers want to attract and retain the best talent that they can. If that workforce wants to or feels like they can be more productive with some level of hybrid work into their schedule, there may be some of that. I think when you get back to the office and you have those moments of collaboration with colleagues and you get that interface with people on your team or other teams within an organization, I think there's a lot of value to that. And I think for the vibrancy of communities, it's very important that there's a density of people to develop the things that give the community its flavor. The after work establishments and dining options and retail shops, those in a lot of ways give a community their feel and flavor, especially a downtown or Main Street. If that density goes away to e-commerce, I feel that we lose a lot of our identity. Getting back to where we have some of those shared experiences and those familiar places, that gets us back to that vibrancy. That vibrancy ultimately is what attracts more to that nucleus. If a company comes to town and they don't see that vibrancy on a Wednesday or Thursday night, they begin to say, is this the kind of place our employees are going to want to stick around? Is this the kind of place we want to be? That's why a lot of our efforts here downtown are focused on getting vibrancy back into the downtown. Describe your management style. I'm very much a player manager. I like to do work and I like to coach as we go. I like to try to keep the big picture in mind, but also focus on the details. We have a team who are very excellent and are pros at what they do. But I think sometimes having some outside perspective and opinion on how we do things and taking slightly different approaches is a good thing. I always talk about the net and the spear approach. How are we going after those tranches that make sense for us in a particular market segment, but then very specifically where are companies from a target perspective that make a lot of sense to be here? In your prior positions, looking at Des Moines from afar, what was happening in central Iowa that excited you? I would say it was less about a specific thing, company, or project, but I think it was just in the cumulative. You could always count on Des Moines' entrepreneurial ecosystem doing some capital raises or something innovative to grab some attention. 
You could always count on the existing manufacturing base making some capital investment and building out capacity. You could always see new investments that were hitting the market that weren't just investments that were important for that one company. But you think about the suppliers and all the trades doing the work in that facility. That's a lot of companies that are based here. That's a lot of business owners who are supporting nonprofits. It's this great connection between the people, the community, and businesses. When you're outside the region looking in and you see a billion dollar investment or a major investment downtown, a place making initiative or a major housing development downtown, or a big project or amenity, all those things are confidence markers that those people building those projects have confidence in our region and in what's happening here. It puts our efforts in economic development in a wonderful position to go out and say to companies, look at all the great things that are happening in our market. Tell us about a book you recently read. I just read Saving American Cities by Elizabeth Cohen. It's about Ed Logue. She picked him because it's about the development of cities through the perspective of this one person's career as they went through these different places and how his thinking around urban revitalization, which was largely funded by the federal government and ultimately went more into private development hands. It was interesting how his mindset changed from let's tear it down and start all over again, which was kind of the mindset in the 50s, to let's work with what we have. He basically went from being this all-powerful guy who was this linchpin for all these federal resources and dictating to communities what they wanted, to then listening to communities to say, how do we work together to come up with the best solution that everybody wants? Brian Crow at a glance, age 41, hometown Downers Grove, Illinois, lives in Urbandale, family, married, two daughters, ages eight and nine, education, bachelor's degree, University of Illinois, Chicago, hobbies, playing bass guitar in a band called City Park, traveling, spending time with family and friends, watching his daughter's soccer games. Contact B-C-R-O-W-E at dsmpartnership.com. The next story is written by Kathy A. Bolton. A look at what's planned around the proposed soccer stadium. In fall 2019, Krauss Group announced plans to develop a multi-use sports stadium on undeveloped ground southwest of Des Moines' central business core. A couple months later, a master development plan was released for the area located on 13 acres south of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and on both sides of Southwest 14th Street. The project, valued at $95 million, was to include the six to 8,000-seat stadium that would be home to a United Soccer League Championships franchise team, a street-level plaza, a five-story office and retail building, restaurants, and a parking garage for 500 vehicles. Over the next 18 months, Krauss Group announced that the proposed development was moving two blocks west to a contaminated site near the Raccoon River. 
The company, which owns Come and Go, also announced its redevelopment plans had grown to include an area totaling about 72 acres that would cost about $550 million to develop. Krauss Group, through its development arm, Krauss Plus, partnered with the City of Des Moines to request funding through the Iowa Reinvestment Act. In June, the Iowa Economic Development Authority approved providing up to $23.5 million in state hotel motel and sales tax revenue to the project that would include development of the open-air stadium, the plaza, three hotels, and entertainment center, a brewery, and a grocery store. The reinvestment district, quote, will reimagine blighted, vacant, and brownfield sites in the heart of Des Moines and replace them with dynamic, mixed-use neighborhoods that use the power of place to draw people of all ages and backgrounds to downtown, end quote. Backers of the project wrote in their presentation to the Iowa Economic Development Authority Board. If all 23 proposed projects are completed in the reinvestment area, the projected value of the properties would increase to $159.1 million from their current value of $14.6 million, according to the presentation provided to the board. In its application to the state, Krauss Plus provided details for nine projects, all of which are expected to be completed by mid-2026. Development costs for the nine projects total $209.1 million, according to the presentation. Planning for the remaining projects, mostly office, retail, and multifamily, would begin in 2024 with construction occurring between 2025 and 2031, according to the presentation. The new developments, particularly the stadium, event venue, and brewery, are expected to attract thousands of visitors annually to the area. It's exciting to talk about all the things happening in downtown Des Moines. The soccer complex, Global Plaza, the skate park, and the Dew Tour, Brian Crow, Executive Vice President of Economic Development at the Greater Des Moines Partnership, said during a recent Business Record Project 515 panel discussion. Those things are unique amenities and assets that differentiate us from other communities and make us a really attractive place to locate a business or to keep and expand a business, he said. Dave Albert's column, The Albert Files. Reapportionment. Recent releases of 2020 census data mark the beginning of the complicated process of redrawing Iowa's political boundaries. Reapportionment is something that has happened in Iowa every 10 years since 1930, when our congressional delegation was reduced from a high of 11 U.S. representatives to 9. Because representation in Congress is based on population, Iowa lost five more U.S. House seats following the 1940, 1960, 1970, 1990, and 2010 censuses. It's not that Iowa wasn't growing. After we became the 29th state in 1846, Iowa experienced only two decades of population decline. The first was between 1900 and 1910. The second was during the 1980s farm crisis. Before 1930, many states, including Iowa, did not consistently redraw political boundaries. 
Iowa's pre-1930 districts included one district that wound like a snake across northeast Iowa and another that curled like a giant comma with a long horizontal tail away from the Mississippi River in central Iowa. Such geographic representations are called gerrymandering, after Elbridge Gerry, a founding father whose creative 18th century drawing of a district in Massachusetts resembled a salamander. Iowa's current system dates from the 1980s and was prompted by a failed plan in 1971 that was overturned by the Iowa Supreme Court. Unlike many states where new districts are drawn by whichever party is in power, Iowa reapportionment is overseen by the nonpartisan Iowa Legislative Services Agency. Iowa's 1980 law establishing the procedure allows the LSA to successively draw as many as three maps for congressional and legislative districts. Lawmakers can only vote up or down on the first two maps. Only when a third LSA map is voted down can partisan lawmakers make changes. So far, that has not happened. In 1981, lawmakers approved the third LSA map without changes. Since then, the LSA never had to produce more than two maps to reach agreement on congressional districts. The recently released 2020 census shows how disproportionate Iowa's 2011 districts have become. Iowa law basically allows a 2% variation between the largest and smallest districts. Population gains of the past 10 years are most noticeable in the 3rd District, which stretches from Des Moines to Council Bluffs. That district is now 12% larger than the 4th District, which includes Sioux City and Ames. As the LSA crunches numbers to resolve how population shifts can be reconfigured into new districts, I've been, also been playing with rough numbers. And I think I've found a simple solution that will create four congressional districts with nearly equal populations. It begins with a donut hole district of six counties in the center of the state. The combined population of Boone, Story, Marshall, Dallas, Polk, and Jasper counties in 2020 is about 795,200, not far from the new ideal population for congressional districts. Now, if you draw a north-south line through the middle of Iowa and take the 46 counties west of that line that are not part of the donut hole, you'll get a district with about 800,300 residents. Divide the remaining 47 counties in eastern Iowa almost evenly with 24 counties in the north and 23 in the south and you get districts with 789,200 north and 805,700 south. All four of these new districts appear to fall within the law's population guidelines. Knowing this now, it will be interesting to follow along as the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency and the currently hyperpartisan General Assembly work through the process. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, September 3, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.